Siri ain't gonna ask you, hey, do you wanna put it on your CIBC Visa card ending in these four digits? Siri's gonna say, you don't have enough cash to do it, Sebastian. You wanna put it on credit, right? Let me negotiate the best deal. From the Rose School of Business, this is the Dow Business Review Podcast. In our inaugural episode, we sat down with Gordon Cooper. Gordon's an expert in the financial services and fintech industry. He brings over 18 years experience working at Visa around the world, and he's also a seasoned venture capitalist. On the show today, one of our editors, Sebastian, sat down with him to talk about his background in the payments industry, open banking, financial inclusion, and emerging trends in fintech in general. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about your background, just how you got into payments. I know you you studied and then you did your MBA, um, and then you sort of stayed in payments uh, even up until now, but you went first to Visa. That's right. Well, and maybe if you'll allow me, the first part of my background that's relevant because we're sitting here in the middle of the Dal campus right. is I'm a very proud Dalhousie and University of King's College grad. So uh, I, I didn't study anything related to payment systems or mm-hmm. fintech or any of that science, stuff. I, think, right? I did political science. That's yeah. exactly right. Actually, I did the foundation year program at King's. Which, which is, is awesome. Great, I hear very good things about it's it. It's a great program. And, and, um, and then shortly afterwards, I streamed into kind of international relations and did a political science mm. A degree at Dal, and some of my professors are still there. Um, and uh, and then I moved to Japan for a year, but I, I came I, I came back, and um, that's right. I did I did an MBA um, at uh, the Schulich School of Business, not the Schulich School of Law, but the other Schulich School, which is at York that's University. York, yeah. And in particular, they've got they've got a, a kind of a, a unique program there. It's their international MBA, where you must um, specialize or study in a second language and develop a reasonable degree of fluency and you have to work in that country. So my, my stream was J- Japanese and, oh, wow. and Japan. But when I, to answer your question, when I came back to Toronto, the, the kind of the capstone of that particular MBA program is you do a, an intensive several months um, kind of working project inside an institution to, to see if you can help that company as a band of mini consultants, if you will, right, right. Um, solve a business problem. And we were in Scotiabank, and we were very fortunate to have quite quite senior level sponsorship from the executive office. And at the time, this is way back in 1998, um, when the very first um, chip cards were coming out. So, so moving away from the magnetic stripe on the back of the card right. is the way mm-hmm. to swipe it. Exactly. Or even I remember these, I don't remember them, but yeah. I knew there were like some sort of like things that. Yeah, well, yeah, would, yeah you're exactly right. So yeah. phase, phase one was the, we called it the zip zap or the yeah, manual imprinter where you had those embossed numbers right. on the card. And then mm-hmm. in the eighties they said, boy, this is too low tech, yeah. man. We need something that's more sophisticated. So they put little strips of magnetic tape on the back of the cards, and that and that worked right up until the fraudsters said this is way too easy. So yeah. thank you very much. And so <laughs> Canada was actually to give you know to give Canada a shout out. Canada was one of the very first countries to start a kind of a national migration to putting chips in the in the front of the cards. And there were a few different applications for what those chips would do. And at the time in in 1998, Scotiabank. Um, along with all the big banks, we're trying to decide between these two competing stored value card offerings, one from Visa called Visa Cash and the other was from MasterCard called Mondex. Both 
went the way of the dodo bird. It turns out that nobody needed stored value cards, but that's a, a, a topic for a, a different day. And mm-hmm. um, and our our group, we you know, it was such a fortunate experience. We we got thrown, uh, actually, we got thrown into the old retired office, the former CEO office on the corner of King and Bay in Toronto. Mm-hmm. They said, hey, nobody's using this room. You guys can have it as your mm-hmm. war room. And we proposed um, our recommendation to the Scotiabank uh, folks. And, and it kind of, it bled up to some folks at Visa because it had a leaning that way. And to make a long story short, Ooh. we all, we all, each one of us um, got job offers wow. out of it. Um, some for Scotiabank and some for Visa. And I had a conversation at Visa Canada and I said, bad luck. My, my girlfriend and I, we've decided now she's my wife. We're moving back to Asia. We've decided yeah. we're going to Singapore, so I, I, can't, I can't work for you here. But if you could make an introduction to somebody wow. in Singapore, I'd be delighted. And, and uh, the CEO of Visa Canada at the time was uh, a person named Derek Fry. And he, he was sort of newish, if I recall. And he very kindly sent an email. He looked in the directory. It was still a paper directory at that time of the Visa Global Directory. And he said, uh, it looks like it's Rajiv Kapoor, that's his name. Yeah, he's a guy in Singapore. I don't know, but you want an introduction? He did. I packed my bag. I moved to Singapore, and uh, and I apply. I didn't get the job before I went. I moved to Singapore without a job. Okay. And uh, and that that guy, Rajiv Kapoor, who's still a dear friend of mine, he um, he gave me a, a chance. And the next thing you know, I worked for Visa for wow. eighteen years. Eighteen. <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought it was yeah. less than eighteen. That's wow. That's a lot. And and yeah. And so now let's talk a little bit about how like what you did there. Um, and I think for starters, just tell us, in your view or in the view of the job you did, what is payments, and specifically what is payments in, in, in Asia? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I, I did I did kind of two. I mean, I was there for eighteen years, so I did a lot of different different yeah. jobs. But mm-hmm. I would say half of them were in what you could call new product commercialization. So. As we know, like payments have sort of changed form over the years from that manual imprinter, the zip zap mm-hmm. to magnetic tape, and then and then having the microchips milled in the front of the card. And then somebody said, hey, what if we put an antenna connected to the chip and we put the antenna in the inside of the plastic? Then you could just tap your card. Yeah. And then somebody said, well, why is it in a card anyway? I mean, why don't we just put it in a phone or a mm-hmm. wristwatch? And so I worked in the Department of Visa that... Um, in various departments that was kind of responsible for testing the new the new wave of a lot of that stuff. So I was fortunate to be involved mm. in some of the very, in fact, I, I, I um, was leading the, the, the first ever contactless tap payment initiative for Visa using what became the, the global standard. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a project in wow. Malaysia. And so it, Visa started it. Yeah, so both Visa and MasterCard were, were doing it more or less at the at the same time in, mm-hmm. a, bit of, in a bit of a race. And as yeah. often happens with these technologies, eventually it gets yeah. totally standardized. People, the, the war, people put down their war tools and say, all right, let's have a common standard and mm-hmm. that'll help the overall market grow. Right. Um, so about half my time was doing that kind of new new tech product stuff in Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and the other half of my time was in general management. So I, I ran a couple of different countries. I, I was the P&L owner for mm-hmm. uh, first Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, um, and then uh, Singapore for a time. And then my last role at Visa was I was the general manager for the emerging markets across Southeast Asia. So Indonesia, Philippines, mm-hmm. Myanmar, Vietnam, <clears throat> you know, a handful of the 
the uh, the more exciting, fast-moving kind of emerging economies in Southeast Asia. Aside aside from from general management and more towards the work you did with testing and innovation and stuff like that, would you say Asia and those emerging markets um, were of your of your appeal? And I mean visas appeal. Uh, specifically or they have uh, all those programs as well in other parts of the world in other in emerging markets such as latin america for example yeah um you know especially with an organization like like visa or mastercard or other global networks the way these things tend to work is <clears throat> once they get battle tested in one place if they work then they get rolled out mm. broadly but i think you know to kind of get to what i think you're alluding to in in your your good question there is asia more likely to be one of the early movers in these types of tech things? And the shorter answer is absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And <clears throat> I think the motivation varies a little bit country to country. I mean, Asia is, is um, you know, in many ways, that's a, it's a meaningless term because Asia is so broad, yeah. right? And, you know, China, for instance, has very little in common with Cambodia. Sri Lanka doesn't have much in common with Australia, which many people would put in Asia. But across all, I mean, most of those countries, there is, um, as a, this is a gross generalization, but there's a, a real propensity to, to innovate, right? And to push hard. And, and to adopt those things. Like and to rapidly. adopt those things. And I think the motivations are different. Like the, the Japanese um, are just kind of insatiably curious. And uh, it's, it's a funny mix because it's, of course, steeped in such tradition in so many ways. But but profoundly eager to invent new things. Mm. And, and that's kind of burned into the DNA of the culture, whereas in, in so Vietnam... So it goes as deep as, as how risk-averse a, a, a culture is. I, I think so, but, but like you know, to take another example, right, and I'm just drawing on the places that I know best because I live mm -hmm. there, um, Viet Vietnam, I think, would be a, a quite a different set of motivators, right? And it was really, you know, po post-war Vietnam that was communist both politically and economically, mm -hmm. Um, you know, towards the 90s, you had the Doi Moi um, reform package, w which eventually led to the dropping of American and other sanctions mm -hmm. that, it, that caused, you know, Vietnam, like China today, to adopt the one country, two systems mindset, still mm -hmm. politically very much uh, centrally planned, if you will, but economically, the, the, wi the Wild West are a free and, and open economy. And so in Vietnam, the motivation for innovation, I think, is that for you know, young or middle-aged Vietnamese people today, there's this palpable excitement about, about the freedom to go and try things and mm -hmm. to apply capital and take principled risks and to grow a business and everything else. So those are different motivators from what might propel innovation in Japan. And, and other countries are, are, are different too, you know. Right. So, so it's, qu it's quite varied. But as a general rule, is Asia a place where you see more aggressive investment in innovation and people are more likely to be early adopters? Absolutely, 100%. Mm. You were part of a specific process with the government of Rwanda. Mm, and true. so that has to do, of course, with, with um, public-private relationships or, or, or um, what is it, the PPP? Um, Public-private partnership. Partnerships, right. yeah, exactly. right, you're yeah. right. Yeah, um, yeah in, in terms of fintech or in terms of, of the financial, ser or financial services, how important is that, the, the public-private partnerships? I, I think it exist? is hugely important, especially in emerging economies. I think in, you know, in Canada, for instance, um, uh, because, 
we have, um, you know, very sophisticated and established um, financial infrastructure, not without its problems, um, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we take for granted that um, having a fairly high uh, percentage of the population being able to avail themselves of basic banking services, I can make deposits, I can take out loans, um, that money moves in a very large proportion in electronic format here, Interact e-transfer, paying for your groceries with a card, whatever it is, uh, we take for, for granted. But, um, you know, in more cash-intensive economies, right, so many emerging markets, <clears throat> governments are, of course, looking for anything they can do to stimulate growth in order to increase the well-being of, of their society. And for many governments, it's, a, it's a, an obvious low-hanging fruit to say, you know, if we think about infrastructure in the most generic terms, like, uh, what do we need? We need uh, electricity, check. We, we need water, check. We need, you know, good sewage systems, check. But actually, for a modern economy, in addition to just laying good rails of broadband and everything else, what could be more fundamental than how people exchange value and being able to exchange value in, in a frictionless way. So mm-hmm. to, to take Rwanda as a, as a good example, in fact, I'll tell, tell a funny story. <clears throat> it's true, um, someone from the, the Rwandan finance ministry once told us that one of the biggest challenges they had in Rwanda where they were developing or rolling out a, um, a fiber optic broadband network in the country. Most people don't know Rwanda actually has a a fiber optic broadband network that reaches all corners of the country, which is quite oh, wow. an amazing, uh, you know, bit of development uh, given the, the the challenging circumstances that they'd come from in the mid '90s. But one of the problems they had is when they were digging up the uh, for the you know backyards and stuff to lay the fiber. A lot of people in Rwanda, like many emerging economies, where do you keep your your savings when you want them to be secure? I mean, the default is you kind of put it in the cookie jar in the kitchen. But for many people, they will bury savings wow. in the backyard, usually in the case of Rwanda, actually, by custom, you, you, you stuff the cash inside a, a cow, a horn, a horn. of, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so it's a long way to say that if you're a, a, you know, a finance minister, a central bank in an emerging economy, there's a high degree of interest in a public-private partnership or in, in some ways just working with banks and technology providers and payment networks in the financial services industry to make sure that money can move electronically and digitally mm-hmm. because the difference between someone having to to um, travel uh, maybe hours by bus in order to repay a fortnightly uh, repayment on a on a microfinance loan as opposed to being able to tap a few digits on their keypad and send the money digitally that's not a trivial difference. That's a major difference in terms of not only convenience, but productivity for, for the people who need it most who are living on lower incomes yeah. in emerging economies. And, and today, for example, in, like in those public-private partnerships that, that, that we're talking about, um, those have to do also a lot with, re- with regulation, I guess, like how, how you accommodate that regulation for those uh, who are actually driving the innovation, how much you let them... You let them innovate let's say like in those relationships you 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 come into terms to okay yeah you can do that uh let's build infrastructure for example but in terms of an already built infrastructure like in canada mm-hmm. um there's no sort of accommodation towards open banking uh like europe has or other parts of the world have so compared to the us or europe 
where where is Canada right now in open banking and what is open banking? Mm. Yeah, I mean, to to, to just because I think you're, the, the opening part of your question there is so accurate that no matter whether you're in a, an advanced economy like Canada or you're in more of an emerging economy mm -hmm. in Latin America or Africa or Southeast Asia or someplace, um, all regulators, I think, have a really difficult challenge. Boy, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to, you know, that would be a hard job to work at the office of the superintendent for financial institutions or, you know, or the Bank of Canada or, or any number of regulatory um, bodies that influence regulation because things are changing so fast. And, and you were exactly right that the, the, the challenge for a regulator is to, to balance these inevitably competing demands to, on the one hand, do the main job, which is we regulate in order to ensure systemic stability mm -hmm. and to manage risk of something as important as, you know, economic flows through a payment system. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if we aren't open to the reality that, like it or not, the pace of change in terms of technology and business models is so fast right now, and it's disrupting every aspect of our life, you know, from how we order pizzas to, you know, how we get around in taxis and, right. and, and, and payments are no exception. They've, they've got to be open to that. So Canada, I mean, to think about our home country for a minute, Canada has, um, you know, Canada has a similar challenge to many other um, mature economies, but I, I, yeah, it's my observation that we're 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 a good step or two behind the pace in terms of what's happening in Europe, in the UK, and now we I guess we say those in two two different buckets now post Brexit, and even many other advanced economies like Australia. And you alluded to um, open banking as a good example. Um, which I, I think now in the um, recently released report from Finance Canada from last week, I haven't even, I haven't read it yet, I confess, mm -hmm. but uh, <laughs> there's a better, better a proposed better name for it here called um, Consumer Directed Finance, I believe is mm -hmm. what it is. And it's good because even in the UK when they rolled out open banking, I think they asked half the people, what, is what do you think open banking means? And they said, I don't know, does that mean that the bank is now open on Saturdays and Sundays or <laughs> <laughs> that it's open until you... And, and so, yeah. so to, to maybe to, to begin with that definition, because open banking isn't exactly the kind of the term that we, we chat about at the pub with our friends or whatever. Okay. Open banking is a simple concept that, that says that um, under what circumstances should a consumer like you or me um, be able to kind of authorize or empower a third party, someone other than our bank, to um, go into our bank accounts and 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 uh, and make use of some of our data in our bank accounts to provide a service to us. That's called the not not to be boringly technical, but sort of the read-only version of of open mm -hmm. banking. Someone who could go in and take information to provide a service to you, and then the right version of, as in W-R-I-T-E version of open banking, is the idea that you might authorize a third party to be able to even initiate a payment on your behalf from your, your bank account. And the argument for it is simple, is that, um, first of all, uh, and this is a, admittedly a, a big first principle debate that uh, we may or may not want to get into, but whose data is that anyway? I mean, your transaction history, how many Tim Hortons you know, Boston well, in, Cream in Donuts. Europe, in Europe, yeah. it's yours. It's one's own, right? Well, that's the just, GDPR that says that, maybe, right? That's just, and, and so it's the intersection of GDPR, which is the general data protection 
mm-hmm. um, regulation and, and really the kind of the payment-specific world of PSD2, which is a payment systems directive. And it, But it, you're absolutely right. In both Europe and in Australia, it's kind of the marriage of those two trends, if you will, that are giving rise to this idea of consumer-directed banking. And, and so to, to, to sum it up, it would be, hey, we should give consumers greater control over their data. And hey, let's face it, we're talking about this, about data that comes from every source, social media, you know, our health records, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And specific to our financial data, while banks clearly perform an indispensable role in the financial system, it's probably fair to say that banks are, have not historically been on the leading edge of innovation. And especially when it comes to coming to delivering really convenient new consumer-facing services, a great, a great app that can help you immediately compare the different mortgages on offer, um, given your particular situation, or a fantastic new service that can um, analyze all of your spend in the last uh, little while, and with your permission, trigger a donation to the charity of your choice, all kind and the sky's the limit, right? Mm-hmm. Really, is it tends to be more innovative small companies, f- fintechs, if you will, financial technology startups that that might that, that that might have a better shot at coming up with a creative new service that'll resonate for Sebastian. So, open banking or consumer directed banking says, why don't we think of a way to allow consumers to let other companies use their financial data if the consumer wants it and authorizes it, and of course under all kinds of really important protections that make sure that privacy and data security and all those things are not taken for granted. That's the basic idea. And though, and that also has to do with how much th- the banks want that to happen, right? So, for example, I don't know how it was in, in the UK, but but right now everything is very advanced over there. Uh, in your opinion we're, we're, or in your knowledge, do you know if the the incumbent banks in the UK were happy about it or like... Were they were they against the the open banking? For sh- for sure, I think you know um, no no incumbent mm-hmm. in a largely sheltered industry um, you know starts starts clapping and cheering when uh, when the competitive landscape is opened up and and but that it's such an important question because of course the the context for these regulatory changes in um, the UK and Australia and many other places actually came not just from that perspective of consumer data rights and all that stuff. It actually came from competition reviews of the financial and banking industries. Mm. And in the case of Australia, there was a a pretty hard-hitting royal commission that pointed to some uh, real need for increased competition in the banking industry. And the same was true in the United Kingdom, where there was a report about the so-called CMA9, which is the the nine major banks. And in effect, it said, hey, guess what? You guys aren't innovative enough. It's too much of a club. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, we're not looking to put uh, banks out of business, but our primary interest is to provide good quality service for the citizens of the country while also protecting their data. And so the, 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 the open banking push in countries like the UK said, what we'll do is we won't leave it to the Wild West to say, oh, hey, go ahead and any, any old startup who wants to 
kind of plug in and, and, and take data with a consumer's concern. They can do it however they, they want. That, that would be reckless. And in fact, we have a, a bit of a version of that problem in Canada now because there's a tactic called screen scraping that people are using in the absence of regulation. But in the UK and other places, what they said is, let's standardize some APIs that, that will govern very specifically how we will connect bank systems to third-party systems in a, in, a, in a safe and secure manner. But after we've standardized it, we will tell the banks, you will implement it, and you'll implement it by this date or there's going to be a fine. So it was absolutely a top-down thing that was motivated in part by a desire to see increased competition for the benefit of citizens, um, as well as uh, that, that um, bigger picture of, you know, the first principle question of, hey, shouldn't consumers in a data, if data is the new oil, how do I get my hands on my oil, right? And, right. and how do I have more, more control over my own data? And do you think, do you think that with this report coming out in Canada and mentioning it, like the open banking, I don't remember what it was Consumer called Consumer Directed Finance. Do you I think, think that's the a step, like even them mentioning it? Yeah, oh no, absolutely. There's been a, a series of... Um, of of studies um, that um, have been undertaken by the Ministry of Finance, the, the Finance Canada, the you know Department of Finance. Um, there was a, a a helpful, a very helpful report from the Senate Banking Committee, mm-hmm. um, and actually we're we're quite lucky here because our senator from Nova Scotia, Colin Deacon, has been a tireless uh, champion. He's an entrepreneur at heart, right? Um, and he's been a, a tireless advocate for saying. You know, as much as anything, not only is this good for Canada or whatever else, but or good for Canadian consumers, but actually, if the truth is, is Canada's, we're a small country, right? Mm-hmm. So even if we think about our own startups and the businesses in Canada who want to get into this field of fintech, hey, if we can't test our own solutions in our own backyard because Canada doesn't have an enabling regulatory environment to test it out, mm-hmm no way are we going to compete on a global level because the thing about these startups in the UK in London and you know and 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 in, you know now in Sydney and many parts of in Singapore uh, in in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates where where these kind of more liberal regulatory environments are in place all these these startups they're cutting their teeth over there and they're making mistakes and they're doing things right and they're hiring people and they're just you know experiences like the lifeblood of a startup right mm-hmm. so Canadian startups in this field are going to struggle unless we can at least play in our own backyard. And I, I think there's a degree of, um, um, you know, uh, uh, of just, we sort of know how this story ends, right? If we close our eyes and we think 10 years out, right, is there, is there a way to kind of stop the, um, the merging of technology with financial services? No, we, we, mm-hmm. we know broadly that the toothpaste is out of the tube and it's not going back in. Exactly. So the question is, do you proactively ride it, um, you know, and, uh, and establish the right regulatory framework as proactively and aggressively as you can? Or are you going to be, are you going to be passive in which case you're really at risk of, um, of having foreign companies lead the pace and, and miss out on the participation and any of that value that gets created? Like yeah. everyone's gearing towards giving some sort of financial service, and yeah. why do why do you think that is? Like why, yeah, why is that happening? I think it's um, you know, it it's really a factor of the broader change of this fourth industrial revolution that we're just at the beginning part of, which is really just the impact of technology. 
and uh, you know pick your pick your sub theme whatever you want AI quantum the internet internet of things um, I mean I was going to say mobile but of course like the mobile revolution is is over because er- everything is mobile now so mm-hmm. now it's the the thing internet as some people say and there's a you know, there's an interesting way of, of thinking of it that um, if anybody's interested in this space, I, I can point you to an interesting book called um, Bank 4.0 by Brett King. And he has a, a kind of a, a point of view that very soon, actually, financial services will really kind of fade into the background of our broader day-to-day life that will, whether we're scared by it or not, like it or lump it, is going to be just dominated by these pervasive technologies. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. And uh, paraphrasing one of his examples, you know, when you say you want to go on a trip to Cuba in four weeks to escape the cold, you won't sort of research the the trip and then look through your wallet in order to see which credit card do I want to pay with or how do I do it. First of all, the in, almost the entire back and forth will be voice-directed commerce because whether it's Alexa, Siri, you know, Cortana or any of these other, um, you know, hey Googles, um, are going to be absolutely the, the natural way that we interact with most web-based applications. And so it may be... Uh, uh, you know, hey, Siri, I, I feel like going to Dominican in three weeks. What are the best prices? And they say, oh, Sebastian, I, actually, I could get you an all-inclusive deal for five ninety nine dollars uh, there, there and back. And you say, great, sign me up and do it. And she, and, and she might say, but wait, we agreed your budget plan. And actually, if I look forward to the end of the year, this will put you over your discretionary spend allocation by 17%. Do you still want to do it? And when you say, yes, you're going to do it anyway, <laughs> um, the interesting thing, and this is Brett King's hypothesis, I, I don't know if it will come real or not, is that Siri ain't going to ask you, hey, do you want to put it on your CIBC Visa card ending in these four digits? Siri's going to say, you don't have enough cash to do it, Sebastian. You want to put it on credit, right? Let me negotiate the best deal. And, you know, you may have... How would that work? Like, Well, I mean, hey, listen, if you look at Amazon, to say nothing of Apple, I mean, think, think of it. I've got my, my we're, I know we don't have video here, but I've got my iPhone in my hand. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, eight years ago, right? There was no, we didn't have a, a, a actually, I guess we did eight years ago because I worked on some of the early projects, but <laughs> no, nobody, nobody really imagined that it would be so commonplace to be able to, pay from your phone. And definitely, you know, not too long ago, banks did not imagine that a company like Apple would have the market power to come and say, if you want your card in my phone, which everybody has, and it's so convenient to pay because they just put their thumb down or they look, uh, scan their retina, then you're going to have to pay me a cut. And so I think the, the question is, this is exactly where you were going, is, is, it, a, is it a big leap to imagine the FAGA, Facebook, Amazon, Google, and uh, what's the other one? What's the other A? I, I forget. Apple. Apple, there you go. Um, is it hard to imagine them continuing to move into financial services? The, it's not hard to imagine it if you really think about the fact that 
the financial service in some ways gets subsumed within this broader tech experience that's surrounding mm. us with, you know, from voice and, and, and like every single device being interconnected right through the yeah. Internet of Things. It's not that hard to imagine. Mm. So if you were a, a banker high up in management, would you be worried right now in Canada? Yeah, I, I think in, inevitably you, you need to be worried. And I mean, you, you, you can see it. Uh, hey, there's two ways to see it. Either, um, either uh, you know, it's an opportunity to, uh, with a little bit of a push from behind, to kind of re reinvent yourself or yeah. reorient yourself to um, be able to compete um, in, a, in a new way or... Yeah, or you can hunker down and try to protect and and maybe lobby hard for um, the slowest possible change to regulation and 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 argue that um, you know banks are very well placed to manage risk in a way that third parties aren't. I I, I think that argument is is um, you know while not to diminish in any way the validity of putting privacy and safety and security absolutely ahead of everything else. It's, it's going to be, I, I think, given global trends, frankly impossible to make the argument that only incumbent commercial banks have what it takes to, to meet those, um, you know, those risk management standards we set for ourselves. So I agree. You, you can't make that, with a, that argument with a straight face for much longer. Uh, Gordon, let's go back to emerging markets for a bit, um, and let's talk about financial inclusion. We did talk about your background and sort of what you did in, in in those emerging markets in, in Asia. <clears throat> But, of course, there are, uh, let's say, Latin America, Africa, and Asia as well. Um, emerging markets, maybe Eastern Europe. Um, let's talk about financial inclusion and, and what that means and what that um, what, what opportunity there, there is. Uh, mm. maybe, maybe for the credit card companies like Visa and MasterCard, but also for... For many fintechs, like I can give you a lot of examples of what's going on in Mexico, for example. Yeah. But let's let's talk about that. Like, what is financial inclusion, uh, and what opportunity is is, go is 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 there? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, before we dive into the business opportunity, which is which is very real, you know, mm -hmm. just the the brief kind of um, social or macroeconomic context, I think, is important, which is that we don't think of it day to day because for the most part, we all have bank accounts and convenient and safe ways to save money and to avail ourselves of a loan when we need it to pay for tuition or what have you. Um, in, in the vast majority of lower income countries, um, huge swaths of the population s simply are excluded from the form formal financial sector entirely and it's a it's a bad it's a it's a, a genuine problem both for the consumers and the businesses and also from a macro perspective consumers and businesses hey d digging a hole in the backyard and putting your savings in into a horn um, or b having your savings in a cookie jar in the kitchen having to take time off work in order to uh, in order to go to an you know, to, to, to arrange to, to get money on a bus to the family. If you, if, let's say you're working in a crowd down, down by the, the seaside in, in Ghana, but your family lives in Kumasi up in the northern part of the country, you know, p people would normally, customarily in the olden days, 10 years ago, you, you got to put the money in a brown paper bag and send it on the bus and hope it gets the other side. So all kinds of problems for, cons for, for individuals to say nothing of a lack of, lack of access to credit which is required for micro-entrepreneurs to get started. And then, so those are consumer-level problems, if you will, but from a macroeconomic perspective, um, 
if money is not captured in the formal financial system, you don't have the uh, the magic of fractional reserve banking to allow for loans to be granted to businesses and businesses that want to create new factories and start new export-oriented you know, companies and create jobs and everything else. So long way of saying financial inclusion is actually really important for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, with that said, yeah, for sure, it's a huge business opportunity too. And there was a there was a, a famous uh, professor from, I can't remember where, I think it was Chicago, a guy named mm-hmm. C.K. Prokolid who wrote a great book called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And his, his thesis was, um, you know, most big companies have totally the wrong orientation towards lower income consumers in emerging markets. They say, hey, you know, these consumers have no money. So as much as I would like to sell them, you know, my shampoo, I can't afford to serve them because the margin would be too low. Yeah. And the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid mindset says, no, well, why don't you just rethink how you deliver the service? And so actually to, to keep with that example of shampoo, that's where in in India or in many emerging economies, you go to a, a local Kirana shop, a little roadside convenience store, and you buy shampoo by the sachet, which is a single-use shampoo, and you pay mm. two cents or five cents for it. And lo and behold, when Unilever or P&G figured out how to do that, guess what? They became more efficient overall, and they could apply those learnings back in more advanced economies, mature economies, where they refined their own business model and increased their margins and everything else. So the same is, is true for financial services, where if you take a, a fresh perspective and you look at, at uh, you know, tens of millions of people in my country have no access to a safe place to save. They can't make a payment electronically, and there's no access to credit. And if you said, boy, we've been trying for 100 years to roll out branches. So, um, you know, Kenya has something like, uh, uh, you know, I think it's less than 1,000 ATMs and bank branches over, you know, many, many, you know, over a century of trying to roll out, less than 100,000 credit cards. And it was a, a, a Vodafone affiliate called Safaricom, which in, invented a mobile phone-based way to simply store value, m- make payments in person, and send money to people around the country called M-Pesa. And now something like 92% of adults in Kenya are daily are, are active users rather of, of M-Pesa. It has completely transformed the way money moves in that country in the same way that that sort of slightly different systems, but no less impactful ones in China, like WeChat Pay and Alipay have done in China. So mm-hmm. if you're a fintech or you're a big company and you look at this space, you immediately say, well, we're not going to do it the old way of taking rectangular pieces of plastic and $500 terminals that need to be plugged into a wall when we don't have reliable electricity. And we're not, and we're not building brick and mortar branches. We're not doing any of that stuff because you can do it all on the back of, you know, cloud and mobile devices and and many other technologies where the capital cost is already borne by the people on the street, consumers and and businesses who already have these things. Going back to M-Pesa, the example you mentioned, would you say Vodafone, it was Vodafone, right? Would you say Vodafone had like some sort of regulatory uh, ease in in building that infrastructure with with the financial, I don't know. You're so, it's it's such a good question. And the answer is yes. So it was started... um, so the local uh, affiliate of Vodafone was called Safaricom, mm-hmm. but the project was started by a friend of mine actually got, uh, called Nick, Nick Hughes and, and his partner Susie Loney. They won the Economist uh, magazine Innovators of the Year Award, you know, some, wow. sometime afterwards. Um, 
And, and they thought, we, we got this wacky idea. We need to pick a country for Vodafone where we're going to do it. We'll try it in Kenya. But the only reason it worked in they Kenya... They worked for Vodafone. They worked for Vodafone head office in London. And, um, and, and they said, we need to find a country to test us in. And, and, they, so they, and they went to Kenya. But part of the reason they went to Kenya was precisely because uh, the CBK, the Central Bank of Kenya, and, and, and no doubt other um, kind of players in the regulatory environment within government and whatnot, uh, said you know, this is wacky, um, this is weird. Uh, we've never really used, uh, thought of using tens of thousands of small shops around the country as kind of human ATMs where you could you could kind of put, put cash in, cash out. Mm-hmm. We've never thought of doing this. Um, we won't give you a, like a full license to do whatever you want, but we'll walk the journey with you. And, and so, you know, part of, part of the idea, you know, this expression regulatory sandbox, I think this was a great example where that principle was put into place where it was like, we don't have all the answers now, so let's go step by step and, and test and learn and test and learn, and we will develop the regulatory framework as we go. And that's exactly what happened in that context, and I think it's a great, it's a great learning and a great model for many other countries. Yeah, I think... I think like uh, having that journey is just like something very like if if you're not the one who does it you'll never do it you know what i mean like in like, like in the case of mpesa yes. like in the case yeah. of vodafone yeah, yeah. if two i don't want to say employees i don't know what they were for vodafone but that uh, sort of first connection they had with 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 the regulatory institutions in 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 kenya that's a, a once-in-a-lifetime sort of interaction, yeah. right? And maybe the same yes. happened in Rwanda with you. I don't know. Well, that, well, that, in fact, that was exact p- part of the reason why we we chose. Uh, so that project in Rwanda was, uh, um, we had a small group uh, that was charged with um, cr- creating actually Visa's version of Mpesa, if if you will, yeah. that would be interoperable across different institutions and and. Um, and we needed a country where we could test it. And a big reason that we chose Rwanda was that um, it was very open-minded to um, exploring, uh, you know, the application of technology to solve an important public policy issue, which was electronification of the economy. So the starting point was that, um, you know, that particular government was absolutely clear that the ability to move money electronically was just table stakes for any modern digital economy. And um, so, uh, you know, they, and of course they wanted a competitive environment with any payment network or bank or other, other entity to come in and compete. And, and, but we, we, um, yes, we did forge a a kind of a public private partnership with them to help kind of uh, tackle a number of different things, not just mobile payments um, in in Rwanda. Of course, if you're visa and you knock at, at government's door, it's likely for them for they to open the door, right? But if you're a fintech, if you're a small fintech, and you want to do something like that, um, well, you know, your your first part is is actually interesting because uh, that's uh, my I, guess. Yeah, well, I and guess. I and I of course with the disclaimer that I I don't work for Visa exactly, a- anymore, yeah. so I'm out. But I think so, in some respects, certain things are changing in the sense that um, you know, I, yes, I think 10, 15 years ago. Being a large American well-known payment brand actually did make it, and maybe this would apply for many other industries as well, it was quite easy to open doors with different governments. Mm-hmm. Um, our political times have changed, and I'm not just referring to American presidential elections and stuff. It, it's changed over time, and actually in, in many 
so countries. So a big part. In many countries, it's actually the opposite now, which is, you know, be precisely because banking and payments infrastructure is seen as so fundamental to a domestic economy, uh, many uh, countries are saying, hey, wait a second, we, we're not handing over the keys to easily to any foreign player. We want to keep control of our own infrastructure. And so we want a, a national debit card scheme. We don't want, mm. you know, Visa or MasterCard debit cards. And I mean, a side note, I know Canada has very few Visa or MasterCard debit cards, but in most countries, actually, debit cards are the vast majority of the volume for Visa and MasterCard. And they may say, you know, we, we want to have a, our own mobile payment system. And China is, of course, the best example where they have, have quite uh, brazenly, I guess you could say, um, ref- refused to comply with a longstanding WTO ruling that said they've been you know, effectively uh, protecting uh, their domestic banking and mobile payments market and precluding Visa and MasterCard from competing on domestic renminbi transactions. Um, it looks like that might be poised to re- resolve itself. So, so the regulatory environment in, 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 in many cases actually uh, shuts out the big multinationals, especially the big multinationals from the powerhouse that is the United States. So it's a yeah. bit of a changing landscape. Yeah, that's really interesting too. Um, Sorry, but I, I didn't answer the second part of your question, which is fintechs, harder for them to get in. Yeah. I think that's a fair question. I mean, I do think that's a fair point. If so do you think they have to operate for them to be noticed or they have to knock the door first, if you know what I mean? Uh, well, no. Oh, yeah, that's a, you know, for what? example, that is a great question. Yeah. So so do you do you um, do you avoid uh, do you ignore the regulatory framework? This is the, this is the fundamental strategic question, right? Is it yeah. better to uh, to um, ask for permission or ask for forgiveness? And yeah. and look, that's a judgment call that each business needs to make. But I I dare say that in financial services, my, my strong leaning is it's a bad idea to go and ask for for um, for forgiveness later. It's uh, a bad idea. It's a bad idea because we're talking about money, right? We're talking yeah. about money. And, and if you're doing anything that looks like it could conceivably run afoul of current regulatory frameworks, you know, um, it's uh, it's not the industry to be taking risks in. I mean, I mean, there are other industries where it would be even more exacerbated. You would never go and develop a new drug to treat a rare disease and roll it out without going right, through your right. proper clinical trials and, and approvals. But financial services are similar. And I think I think the point is, is that most regulators are many around the world, and some jurisdictions are infinitely more open than others. Singapore and the UK come to mind. But most regulators are trying to adjust to the new reality of how quickly technology is changing. And therefore, they they actually want to hear for the most part. They want a new company, a new idea to come in and say, look, I, I got this crazy idea. Um, I, I'd like to test it and, and try it. Could, could we please explore the context in which I might be able to gradually test, put this service through it, mm-hmm. its paces? Which is, which is a weird... Um place to be in my opinion because if you don't have any sort any any sign of growth let's say if you if it's just an idea for the moment how like even if it's just an idea maybe you don't have the 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 investment either so yeah. like it's sort of you well, know what i mean it's i know exactly what you mean and that that goes back to my comment about senator senator deacon and his you know i'm kind of paraphrasing what I, I i might get it wrong but paraphrasing what i think is one of his main concerns is thinking about canada and you were asking about entrepreneurship in atlanta canada let's just talk about canada generally yeah if you're a small startup 
with some seed capital, or maybe you've even done your first round of, you know, proper uh, equity round of financing, a Series A. And, you know, you can't afford to hire a sales force and a whole project management team in some other jurisdiction like Europe or Australia or Mexico or wherever. You want to test your product at home. So what if home base is not actually open to testing the business model you have in mind? So it's exactly the argument for saying not open season, let's allow any type of, you know, um, cowboy country uh, innovator uh, come in without uh, without any controls. Not that at all, but saying it is important actually for our innovation ecosystem, if I can use the kind of the cliche mm-hmm. to, to say, yeah, we want to be able to accommodate testing these solutions in our own home country. And already we've got a bit of a disadvantage in the sense that there's only 35 million of us. So it's a small country to begin with to hit scale. Um, so we better provide the most open kind of uh, environment we can within the risk principles we're comfortable with so that our companies born in Canada have a chance to prove their chops here and then maybe cut, you know, cut and paste and go and do it in, in the U.S. 10 times bigger mm-hmm, or some exactly. other place. Um, just, uh, to, just uh, to maybe wrap this up, uh, Gordon, in, for, for a business student, because we're talking mainly to business students with, the pos- with this podcast, maybe they don't know much about fintech, but maybe they want to explore more and maybe they, uh, they want to get into it as, uh, career-wise. What do you think a university or them individually should do in in, uh, in this era right now, like where you you know fintechs out there, but you don't really know how to get into it? Um, yeah. the, you know, one of the, this is one of the most amazing things about like this fourth industrial revolution. Like, at the very least, no matter where you are, information is so accessible. So if you were interested in this space. Uh, let's be blunt. Halifax is not the hotbed of fintech innovation. There are some interesting things happening. And do I think it's possible to create a fintech company in, in Atlantic Canada? Absolutely. But you want to learn from the best. And so I would just say, read up. And, you know, there are a handful of just, uh, you know, resources that I think are particularly good sources for fintech. One is the um, uh, is, is the outfit called 11FS. Um in the UK, which is just a leading consultancy and advocacy group, just subscribing to their um, podcasts and reading their stuff is a is a is a great place to start. Um, and even just following a handful of big influencers like Brett King, who I mentioned before, um, Dave Birch is absolutely uh, you know brilliant and has a, a great book called. Um, uh, before Babylon, after Bitcoin, which is a great kind of his, his, historical context. You know, I think diving in and fo- following a few links there and just re- reading up is um, really easy to, um, yeah, to just kind of see what's going on in other places. And that'll get the creative juices flowing. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming, Gordon. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, um, hope to hope your new podcast uh, was a booming success.